Many visual artists start by envisioning scenes or images, or they work from sketches, photos, or memories. Kirsten Stolle has spent a decade drawing inspiration from and taking aim at agrochemical companies. For me as an artist, I don't want people to forget that Monsanto exists just because Bear bought it and Bear wants to disappear the name. In fact, there is no Monsanto website anymore. They want to disappear the name because it's such a dubious company or has a dubious reputation. Stolly pulls and manipulates imagery and text to spotlight what she calls the greenwashing and troubled histories of Monsanto and Dow Chemical. Her current show is on view at Tracy Morgan Gallery in South Slope through April 8th. I'm Matt Pikin. Today on The Overlook, Kirsten Stolly talks about the seeds of her artistic inquiry, the heavy research fueling her work, and the line she straddles between artistry and activism. Erin Fowler is a commercial photographer. You can find her on Instagram as Scraps of Lace. She specializes in photographing couples and has a real knack for capturing just the right scenes at weddings. But she also takes on the role of event planner. Say you come to Erin wanting engagement photos. On the day of the shoot, Erin could bring you to a vineyard. We might set up a day of them playing games because they love to just play together. Or if they like nature more, then maybe we're doing a hike and then we're finding a place like a covered bridge to like set up their games and they're sitting there and they're having some drinks and playing their games and including that in their special day because that's something they love to do all the time. Erin also prepares for the unexpected. Like I have an emergency kit and in it I have first aid stuff, I have fleece line leggings, I have sunscreen, I have like all the things. So if you want a photographer who sees more than what shows up through her lens, look up Erin Fowler at scrapsoflacephotography.com or on Instagram as Scraps of Lace. I began my conversation by asking Kirsten what her art looked like before pivoting to her brand of anti-chemical warfare. I was doing more work around like mark making. It wasn't really, didn't have anything to do with socio-political stuff. It was more abstract with a little bit of narrative in it. And it wasn't until I started having health problems with eating foods, specifically soy, that had genetically modified to withstand a lot of pesticides. And so it was over 10 years ago that I started to investigate why that was happening in my body. So you were experiencing health issues. How did you connect it to the soy you were eating and go down that rabbit hole or describe the rabbit hole you went down to really unroot what was going on? I will actually back up to the 90s (laughs) for people who are alive in the 90s. 1996, I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was living in Oakland and my mom was living in Santa Cruz. And she invited me to go down to Santa Cruz for this puppet protest theater (laughs) parade. As happens in Santa Cruz. As happens in Santa Cruz. And my mom is very lefty and anarchist. And she was doing this protest against GMOs. 1996 was the first time that Monsanto Chemical Corporation was, they were trying to genetically engineer a strawberry with a flounder gene to withstand the cold temperature to produce more strawberries. So my mom was dressed up as a strawberry with, with fish gills. And so I went to watch her and it was really exciting and I was a little overwhelmed. I didn't participate. I'm shy. And that was that. And then I forgot about it. I was a vegetarian. I was eating a ton of soy, like really processed soy. And it wasn't till about 10 years after that that I started having health problems. And I never determined if it was 
directly correlated or caused, but I can tell you when I started not eating genetically engineered soy, my health issues got better. What's interesting to me is you didn't notice anything for about 10 years. You were eating this food. Totally. It's remarkable that you even connected it to the soy because you would think, oh, it had to be something more recent, more current. It was like the standard of what I was eating all the time. And what was fascinating was I didn't really, I had remembered my mom and the protest parade puppet theater (laughs) situation. And I remember GMOs, but I just started my own life, was doing my own thing. I was in my 20s. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, why is this chemical company genetically engineering plant. What is their deal? That seems very strange to me. Turns out they have a lot of chemicals left over from World War II and the Vietnam War that they need something to do with. So they genetically engineered, let's just take a soybean plant. You plant the soybean, you dump all these chemicals on the soybean plant. It has been genetically engineered to withstand those chemicals, but all the weeds around it die. So my question was, okay, really good weed killer, but what is it doing to the soil? What is it doing to that plant? Is the plant uptaking that chemical and is it getting in my body? Wow. So this took me down this whole rabbit hole of, and oh, by the way, the stuff that you see on their websites, their marketing material, their advertising, their television commercials says none of this, of course. It's all about feeding the world, helping farmers grow more productive, be more profitable. Are you putting a blanket over all genetically modified food. No. And it is fair to say that when I started, I was very concerned about the GMO in particular. I still am, but for different reasons. Now it's because of the amount of pesticides that are dumped on them. I'm not, you know, anti-biotech or anti-science. Like it's very important. There are very helpful things. I'm more concerned with the way the regulatory apparatus is around this. I'm concerned with the messaging that gets out vis-a-vis the companies or industry-backed organizations that it's been documented they have lied about some of the stuff that they're doing. You said something a moment ago about these chemicals being leftover products of war, military Mm -hmm. use, and that they've got to do something with them. Could it be that cavalier in a sense that, wow, we have these chemicals, let's use them. Is it really that simple? I don't know if it's simple, but I believe it's, one, it's definitely one of the factors. One of the main components is 2,4-D in some of these formulations of the herbicides and the pesticides, and 2,4-D was one of the main ingredients in Agent Orange. And this is a, an ingredient in Roundup. Glyphosate is in Roundup, but I don't think 2,4-D is in Roundup. I think it's glyphosate with a bunch of other chemicals, but glyphosate's the main one. And the original soy, my understanding, is the original soybean that was genetically engineered was genetically engineered to withstand this Roundup. There are other corn and soy that actually are genetically engineered to withstand a chemical formulation that does have 2,4-D in it. One primarily is made by Dow Chemical. Fairly certain Monsanto has one too. And it also might be interesting to your listeners that Bayer Pharmaceuticals, the giant German multinational you might know from Bayer Aspirin and other things, they have an entire crop division and they bought Monsanto in 2018. 
until your exhibition. I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. I, I'm so excited to tell people this. Yeah, I didn't know that because when I saw Bear on the artwork, well, Bear's aspirin, I didn't know it had purchased Monsanto, which seems yes. like a, a, a tremendous purchase. Monsanto itself was a multi-billion dollar company. So what was Bear's interest in Monsanto? So Bear's interest and this, there was a lot of pushback from the shareholders of Bear. So one of my processes and my practices, I do a lot of research and I go down the rabbit holes of looking at things like shareholder minutes, which are public information on Bear's website. You can dig into them. And there were lots of shareholders that were saying to Bear corporate execs, please don't buy this company because there's all these lawsuits going on right now in the United States against Monsanto because people are getting non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from spraying glyphosate. And we think that Monsanto might lose and you will have all this liability. <laughs> but Bayer kept pushing and they did. They bought them because they wanted to, Bayer had their own crop science division, so they had their own seed division and some chemicals, but Monsanto, like you said, is one of the biggest players, so they wanted to be part of that. And for me as an artist, I don't want people to forget that Monsanto exists just because Bear bought it and Bear wants to disappear the name. In fact, there is no Monsanto website anymore. They want to disappear the name because it's such a dubious company or has a dubious reputation. Yeah. So when you come to my show and you think about Bear, now it'll make more sense. Right? Yeah, I yeah. got that from reading the material yeah. about wanting to mask over the Monsanto. Yeah. So let's go back to the roots of when you discovered that this the health issues you were facing yeah. were connected to the soy, the genetically modified soy, and then further connecting it to the companies that did that. Why or how did you manifest it in your art? There's a lot of ways people would react to that. Some might call consumer protection agencies or the Food and Drug Administration, or there's myriad routes one would maybe take their discoveries if they took them anywhere at all. Yeah. How did you decide or what was the impetus to give it an, art, an artistic expression? Yeah, it's really interesting because before that happened, my art and my sort of politics were kind of separate. Like I didn't find an avenue to bring the what I was interested in into my art. And because of these health problems, this became the way to do it. And I'm an artist and that's what I do, right? I'm not a scientist. I know enough to be dangerous when I do my research, look at abstracts that I can understand them, government websites and all that kind of stuff. And it was that I had a residency out in Wyoming and I brought a lot of books with me. I went down rabbit holes on the internet and I just started taking notes like I did in college. It was really fascinating. Like I just, I had folders and I did all this stuff and I was like, oh, this is a way for me to start gathering all this information and then bringing it into the studio. And at the time I was doing mostly collage and drawing. So I would draw and collage and I would start using text and incorporating that. And so it just made sense. I'm an artist, so that's what I do. And that's what's going to come into the work. And I honestly, you know, we're in 2023. I really didn't think I'd still be sort of interrogating the chemical companies. But after I finish each project, I don't know. I always go down some other rabbit hole and then something else interesting comes up. It's like a personal thing I want to know. But then I also want to figure out an artistic way that is aesthetically interesting to people but can get a potential idea across and have some people that come to the show or come to my work have a critical view of something, or at least critical thinking. Advertisements don't sound like ads on the Overlook. They sound like conversations, because they are. Take it from one of my earliest sponsors, Jennifer Goodier of Davidia Realty. That was really easy, and I felt really comfortable doing 
this ad with you and I'm enjoying it so much that I do want to buy more. If you market a business or even yourself, make a great impression by advertising on Asheville's hottest show. You can be a sponsor of The Overlook for as little as $100. Ask to learn more by messaging me at matt at podavl.com. That's P-O-D-A-V-L.com. Kirsten Stolle puts a lot of research behind her work, and one of the ways that manifests is through her use of redacted text. I began the second half of our conversation by asking whether this text is her artistic gateway. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. The redacted pieces, there's a body of work called Monsanto Intervention. I can't remember exactly, maybe it's seven or eight years ago that I did it. But basically, I found advertisements, like print advertisements, on eBay from magazines like Time and Life. And these were advertisements that the chemical companies would use to promote their chemicals and war and home and all that stuff. And so the original text, before I do any kind of like intervention in it, is very like pro-chemical, pro-war, a lot of it is like xenophobic and misogynistic, and it's a little shocking because it's from like the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Yeah, I was just going to say that they're very much products of their time. When there was no fear from corporations that Americans would push back on whatever they were peddling, right? right. There seemed to be a one-way channel, corporations telling Americans what's good for them. Yep, yep. And if you remember at that time, this was like, especially in the 50s, we're like, oh my God, innovation, like plastics. Like Monsanto was really into plastics too. They didn't just do chemicals of herbicides, but plastics, and they're also known for saccharin. And you see these images of like housewives. It was, it's like, Visually, they're very interesting. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to redact. So if people are familiar with the term redaction, where the government covers up texts with black lines that they don't that is they don't want the public to see or it's sensitive information. We usually associate redaction with classified Correct. material. Correct. And they're using it to conceal information. I'm using it to reveal information. That's what's really I think really clever about among the other elements of your work that's really clever is through redaction it's what you do expose in the text. It's tying in context that obviously Monsanto and other chemical makers would not have thought would bubble up through their work in the way that they're being selective in what they tell the public or what they told the public, you're being selective in bringing out the text that they never would want to see that context. Absolutely. And I'm using their strategies against themselves, right? Or in, in tandem with what they're doing. And at the show right now at Tracy Morgan Gallery, I have another body of work called Science for a Better Life, which are more redacted pieces. And these are from Bayer advertisements from the 80s. And there's a few other ones. There's, a, I think, a Dow Chemical one from the 60s, but people can see it. Talk about how your work has evolved once you started imbuing it or having it be a central point of your work, be this observation, research, and commentary on what was coming from chemical companies. Talk about the creative arc of your work. Yeah, again, it's like a process when I start a new project. Now I'm flow where generally I'll have an idea or something will spark an idea and then all the research will come, quote unquote research, artistic research. Then I go in the studio and I never know the medium sort of presents itself as I'm developing it. Should it be a collage? Should it be a neon piece? Should it be a sculpture? It happens as the 
research evolves and as I play with things and things are not always successful, I might think, oh yeah, this definitely should be a 18 by 18 foot drawing. And then I start and I go, no, absolutely not. It should be something else. Yeah. Collage seems to be an important thread through all of it. Mm -hmm. Some of them seem almost beautiful in kind of the way they flower up and others seem very stark and contrast with the bright colors with the pure, unadulterated image of a chemical bottle. Yes. Many of my projects are series. So the one you were alluding to called Pesticide Pop, which is at Tracy Morgan Gallery, are these giant oversized, they're 44 inches by 44 inches, they're vinyl on dye bond, and they are images of pesticide bottles blown up on bright colors. So that's why I call the Pesticide Pop. So it's a nod to like... Andy Warhol Mm. and the pop art and all that stuff, right? And you go, why would you want giant pesticide bottles on these bright fields of pink and blue? And it's because it's absurd, right? So it's absurd. And it's also like putting these chemicals on pedestal of admiration. This is how we celebrate things that are really important. And also I think that's concerning. So since you began this work, have you ever heard feedback from these companies? Not that I know of. Never. <laughs> no, no. And I, I get the, every time I do an artist talk or have interesting conversations, but I get asked this question and it could be really interesting to, to talk to people that work for Bear and work for Dow. Now, could I be on a list? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but no, I've never, no one's ever come up to me from one of the chemical companies. Has what you want audiences to experience from your work, has that evolved over time? Because the takeaways can be lots of different things. Sure. You know, people could be outraged. Yep. People could just stunned. People could find the humor, the dark humor of it. Yeah. But is there an activism element within you that you want to trigger within people? I try to steer clear of the word activism. Like my goal, I guess is like a two or threefold. One, the work has to be aesthetically interesting, right? I'm not going to just make a poster that says Monsanto sucks. That's just not interesting, right? Although you do have one of your pieces is on the wall. And what does it say? The no genetic dumping allowed. Yeah, no genetic dumping allowed. So that is just a sign. It is just a sign, but it's a play on the no dumping allowed, the municipal sign. And I think it's funny. It is. But mainly to your point, I really want people to come with a critical eye. I want them to have a response. I don't want to determine what the response is. I hear artists all the time in all realms. I don't want to dictate what my audience takes away. But your work is so based in findings and your sense of this is wrong. Yes. And it also points to not just the chemical companies. Like I think it's important for people to Look at where your information's coming from and who's saying it, who's funding it. That's like another kind of like undergirding of my work to pay attention to not always what's given on the surface of thing, like dig, no pun intended, dig a little deeper. What has this done to your career as an artist in terms of selling work and having it seen? You know, I can imagine certain contemporary art centers would be you know, this would be right up their alley in some ways, but in typical gallery settings, I mean, you have a great relationship with Tracy Morgan, but I can't, I can't see your work necessarily being at home in a lot of commercial galleries. Yeah, it is interesting. My work, since I've been doing this, my presence in museums and nonprofit spaces, 
Tracy, of course, her gallery has increased and my ability to get into museum collections has increased. I do have some collectors that buy my work, which I'm very, very thankful for. Because, yeah, I don't know. Does someone want a giant pesticide pop in their living room? (laughs) Maybe not. I would. But career-wise, it's more about talking about the work, having really interesting shows like the show I just had at the Halsey Institute of Contemporary Art in Charleston, where a lot of this work was. That was amazing. I was down there for a week installing. That that whole show took three years to produce. So that stuff leads to like talking to people at the university, classes coming and interacting with the work from different disciplines. Financially not amazing, but my hope is that my work builds on new opportunities and that will build on the next one, for example. So you said yeah. you're in the midst of working on your next project. Yeah. What phase are you in and what is, can you tell us what this next project is? Sure. So after I finished my show at the Halsey, I thought, okay, I'm done 10 years. I'm kind of depressed. <laughs> doing all this agrochemical stuff. And then I found this article on precision agriculture, which is also known as like digital farming or smart farming. And it exists now. And as it exists now, it basically refers to a tech-focused way of improving your farm to make profit, right? So we use GPS, like in the tractors, people use like computers, right, to map their fields. But precision agriculture and the digital farming is taken to another step where we're going to be starting to use satellite imagery and data sets. And I'm in the sort of research phase where I found that Bayer has this, or I believe it's called Climate View, that farmers can use to figure out their chemical inputs, their seed inputs, water, drought, all that kind of stuff. The satellite manufacturer that Bayer uses is Airbus. Airbus is a French defense contractor. That's interesting to me. What's also interesting to me is who owns the data. Also, how is this going to change farm worker labor? Who is going to be managing all this information? Like, I just, I don't have a positive or negative yet. I'm just blown away. This is so fascinating. Yeah, that, I'm wow. in those. I mean, the initial, like, I have, like, physical folders on my table. I have all these folders on my computer. I've listened to, like, webinars from Airbus and all this stuff. I can imagine it just must be in a tangle right now. Totally, yeah. And it's, like, you you probably have this as a journalist. You're like, oh, my God, there's this little nugget. And then you just go, oh, here we go. Yeah. You should, if you ever get tired of making your art, you could be an investigative journalist. <laughs> I don't want to get sued. I don't know. It's too scary. <laughs> I'd like to thank my guest today, Kirsten Stolle. Her current show, The Grass Isn't Always Greener, is up through April 8th at Tracy Morgan Gallery in Asheville's South Slope. Today's conversation happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which owners Susan and Giles Collard have been so gracious enough to open to me to record my interviews. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are online by 6 a.m. every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at podavl.com. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.